Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Ben. Hey, Bernard. How are you? I am well. It's a little bit in the midnight in Singapore. And how are things with you in San Francisco? Uh, everything's good. We're a busy time of year. A lot of events going on, and so it's keeping busy. Finally, we are at the 100th episode, and it's great to have you on again. Yeah, happy to be a part of such a landmark episode. Yes, and we are talking to Ben Beharin from Creative Strategies and Techpinions. Since the last episode, when we talk about semiconductors eating the world, what have you been up to since we last spoke? Well, obviously, I mean, it's one of the things that we'll talk about today. VR has sort of taken up more of our time just because there's some accelerated momentum at an industry level. We've actually done, I think, you you know, you guys know or some of our listeners probably know we, we do a lot of, of primary market research. So we've been doing updating all of our consumer studies from everything from smartphones to PCs and tablets and wearables. And I actually just did a virtual reality study, which was both observational. So we had people come in and try it and kind of got their feedback. Then we did actually a broader study spelling out use cases, looking at prices, brand awareness. And so while it's young, we're trying to get some data, the data we can collect on the market. So it's been good to sort of update all of our data models and get some fresh consumer research across the vectors. And so we, we completed most of that in the last month and have a bunch of uh, fresh data on the markets that we're studying. You have just came back from the Game Developer Summit and VR Developer Summit 2016. One of the major topics this year is about integrating virtual reality into gaming. What are the interesting stuff you've seen so far? Well, that's certainly where it's starting. I mean, I think we have to remember, you know, we're in the early days of VR. I think, you know, we need to have more consumers experience VR so that they can kind of understand the benefits. But right now, unquestionably, it's playing itself out in the developer world. So there wasn't much at the conference outside of actual game development. Everybody was talking about how do you do game development for VR? What are the new tools? How do you think about developing games? What are the kinds of games? So it was really Obviously, it's a game developers conference, so it was very game developer centric. But it was interesting that you know last year VR was a part of this, but it was a pretty small part. Whereas this year they actually had to have rooms of overflow and overflow for the overflows for people who's sitting on the VR sessions, just because there's so much excitement. And I think it makes sense for developers because you know in the early stages of any category like this, you can actually you know extract some real value monetarily. So I think the game developers are are hoping that they could make some real money if they jump on if they jump on VR soon. So that's why I think we're seeing a lot more of the game community jump on it. And just because, you know, the the real experience, you know, high-end experience headsets like a HTC Vive and an Oculus, you know, they require a PC. They're a little bit more entrenched with PC gaming ecosystems, whether that's Steam with the Vive or what Oculus is doing around their development environment. So it's starting off in PCs. It's starting off in high-end PCs. That's not a big market, but that's how we're, we're starting it. And I think it makes sense with where the technology is today versus where the technology is going to be in a few years. But most of what I saw was very, very gaming-centric, and there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of the meetings I had with the semiconductor companies and folks who are excited about this, just because of the innovation that's going to be required in semiconductors and performance 
performance and thermals and all these interesting things that they like to go and and solve with their technology. There's a lot of that that's really needed for VR and, and eventually AR as well. So they're all really excited and they're all thinking, obviously, much farther beyond the PC about how this might develop into the mainstream markets. So it was useful, mostly interesting stuff that I saw on meetings I can't talk about yet. But in terms of what was there publicly, it was very, very game-centric. And I think that's fine because that's that's where we're at in the development of the market. Which is the main topic for today is about augmented reality AR and virtual reality VR. And this is something that has been ongoing in the last couple of months, particularly in the recent Mobile World Congress 2016, where, of course, the most interesting photo of the year is when Mark Zuckerberg walked in with this whole group of people wearing this headset and it looks like, you know, right. 1984 all over again. Right. But, but getting to the topic itself, in today's industry, what is the definition for augmented reality AR and virtual reality VR in the technology business? That's kind of one of the, the rubs is that there really isn't, you know, a definition. There isn't, we're, we're, we haven't really landed on kind of how do we articulate these things because VRs, again, it's in both of these, virtual reality and augmented reality is kind of one of those things you have to experience. And I will say, you know, when we when we think about augmented reality, most of us think you take your cell phone, you, you hold it up over something and things pop up and that's fine. When you experience AR in a headset, meaning that what you move, your hand, you don't have to hold a phone in front of your face, it's sitting via display, it's a much different augmented reality experience once it's on a headset. But there isn't, you know, much. I think augmented reality is a little bit more easy to define because we're just saying of overlaying the digital on top of the physical world. Virtual reality, again, can be all these different things, right? Just because I'm seeing what it's like to play a game or or be in, envi- in an environment that's digital or virtual, that same definition is encompassed with me being able to go and experience Paris remotely, right? The actual physical world. I can go and experience the physical world virtually. So because VR can span a digital environment, a game, a, f- a fake world, and it can span the real world, it's kind. that's, again, kind of tricky to define. So that's why there isn't really... I have not heard anyone sort of standardize on a definition. I think we think about it a certain way and we've, 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 we've asked consumers how they think, what they think it means. But there isn't really anything I think that's sort of a standard definition for it, which p- might be part of the problem why people don't understand it. But I think again, once you try really good virtual reality experience, I mean, you're, you're converted. There, it's, it's hard to not understand how powerful that will be in terms of consumption of media and all sorts of experiences when you try a good one. But that's the problem is most people haven't, but the the definition is actually quite diverse. Actually, we have been told that VR and AR actually held great promises in the past two decades. I remember 20 years ago, I was still looking at something called VRML, which is a kind of HTML for the virtual reality on the web browser. But it seems that this is going to be very different this time. Why is it so? Is it because the technology advances in the frame rates and videos or some other factors that lead to this sudden burst in VR and AR being dominant? Yeah, I mean, it's really a technology experience. The technology's come along far enough that we could, you know, we can actually take these headsets and commercialize from the optics, the performance of sensors that are involved and do so at sub $1,000, right? I think if you if you talk to anybody who's been looking at this and excited about virtual reality, you know, for decades, they've always said, you know, to, it's just really expensive and the technology is not there. Now we're starting to see the technology get pretty close. I mean, it's still not 
high definition, super high resolution, even at the Oculus, you know, and the and the HTC, you know, seven hundred, eight hundred dollar types of devices. But again, we'll get there. Un- unquestionably, we'll get to extremely high resolution experiences on on these devices. And so again, it's the technology being able to get into a price point that seems commercializable, which is where we're at today. But again, I think we've got a long way to go. But the mobile ecosystems, the maturation of the CPUs and the GPUs in terms of technology, the graphics, developer libraries, the ecosystem, it's all just gotten to a point where, all right, we can see all these pieces coming together and we still have a ways to go, but we're absolutely getting much, much closer. As a Star Trek fan, I'm always fascinated by the possibility of having a holodeck. So this is great stuff. And actually, one of the interesting things is that there are actually many Asian players that are actually in the AR and VR market itself. So I wanted to start off by asking, how is the AR and VR markets and ecosystems currently segmented? Are they used interchangeably by research analysis like yourselves? No, I think we're separating them right now just because we haven't really seen these these two technologies merge yet. Somebody like Magic Leap or Microsoft HoloLens, those are much more augmented reality environments. So that's just layering over digital either holograms or digital 3D images on top of the physical world. And those are separate headsets. There isn't an all-encompassed virtual reality kind of experience because the entire display isn't taken up or backed up yet. And then in VR, there's not a lot going through to add AR because the optics and the sensors and taking those cameras and and bringing in the physical world, there's just a lot of technology there. I think we'll get there. We'll merge these two worlds so that from the same head-mounted unit, you can have an AR experience or a VR experience or both. But we're, we're still a ways out there. So we're still separating them. Company like Microsoft's trying to use the term mixed reality. It's sort of gaining some traction. But these headsets that you sort of see commercializable right now are, are mostly purely VR. So so we're separating them right now. But my belief is that we'll eventually merge merge those two worlds at some point in time. Who are the major players in the space, given that they're Asia and US companies? For example, Samsung, Oculus Rift, under Facebook, HTC, Sony, Google. Well, so I look at it a different way, right? I mean, Google hasn't really done much here other than can use some Android devices and stick them into headsets. You know, who's leading right now just in terms, I think, of brand awareness and brand share is the Gear VR, the Oculus, HoloLens, and the 3D Vive, and then the PlayStation Morpheus. I think those are the ones that have the most awareness. They're also either in market or very close to being in market. So all of those brands will be there this year. HoloLens still more at a high end. That unit's you know above $3,000, more of a developer environment for right now, but a high level of awareness of that within the market. Those are the the brands. Now, again, I think you've got relevant players in, in Intel and Qualcomm and in MediaTek uh, being enabled by ARM, even AMD. I think these folks are all marching forward here, NVIDIA, to enable this, right? Without really good semiconductors, this isn't going to happen. So those companies are relevant in this, even if they're behind the scenes. But from a brand standpoint, sort of all of the companies that I discussed are kind of your front and center, getting the most attention in the media, driving more awareness of consumers, either because of marketing or because the media is talking about them. But that's, I think those companies have the most mind share. But again, I think we can't leave out the importance of, of the component industry to make this happen either. Noticeably, one company is absent and that's Apple. So I know you wrote something recently on TechPinions about this. Are they going to be involved from what you're observing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's inevitable. They've got all of the pieces that are necessary to do this from, you know, silicon design, which I, I do think 
there's going to require some very specific component evolution and some specific semiconductors and sensor designs that will be uniquely designed for VR to make this happen. So they have those components because they do design their own SOCs and and GPUs. And so they can customize a chipset for this, which I think is, is essentially necessary to yield the best experience. Obviously, they have a developer ecosystem that will jump on board and start developing apps. So when they bring a VR SDK, you'd have to imagine that their developers would enjoy that and and take advantage of it. And more importantly, they've got a, a wealth of customers who will spend on this content. So whether it's video content, you know, watching, you know, watching your favorite sports, like you're being there, it really is a when you think about what Apple's done, kind of experiences that they've done, what the potential for VR and AR is. I think they're absolutely well positioned, even if they're not in the market today. But the market's young, and we know Apple's patient, and they they enter the market when they're ready. But it was kind of the elephant in the room when I was talking to pretty much all these companies is they all just assume Apple's going to enter this space. And, you know, so they're aware of it, slightly concerned about it, trying to hope that they can get some share of the market of their market. But I think, you know, Apple's got a big ecosystem. They're well positioned to sell to that ecosystem. And I think it's it's just a matter of time before they come in with VR. What are the business models for VR and AR markets, are they predicated on hardware uh, similar to console gaming or to software? I think there'll be both. You know, obviously these things aren't going to be free from a hardware standpoint. I, I sort of wrestle with how cheap we'll make them. Over the course of time, yes, I think we might shift more to a software model, but right now you're going to have to pay for the hardware and then you're going to also have to pay for the software. But I do think there's even services that layer on top of that. You know, Red Eye, it would, it would not be out of the realm of thinking to speculate that someone like Comcast or Dish or any TV provider who provides content, Netflix, couldn't get into this market and subsidize the cost of that hardware so that they give the hardware away and then you can now go and experience that con- that content. Now again, right, the hardware battle, I'm not going to have five of these sitting around my house, so I'm not going to have a Netflix headset and a Comcast headset and an Apple headset. There's going to have to be some standard so that whatever hardware I choose, I buy that hardware and I can consume a range of content from games to videos and pictures and things I make, etc. But I do think you can see some companies get creative over you know, the next five, eight years and develop some of these and bring them to market with a subsidy model where you pay for a service, subscription to video or something like that, and then subsidize the cost of that hardware. But for the next you know, two, three years, I think we're still going to pay, you know, north of two, $300 for that hardware. There'll be a lot of, because it's still early, you'll have a lot of people who are in the market who will pay for that content. So there'll still be a way to make money on VR movies that you could charge more for a VR movie than a regular movie. You could charge more to watch the basketball game in VR than if you just streamed it or whatnot. Games, people will pay more for it because it's VR. So right now it's, it's a very hardware and software, but I think services come into play. But for the next few years, those will be the main business models. There'll be a hardware business model, there's a software business model, and then I think over time that'll include a a services business model. I'm just going to ask this specifically to the Asian companies like Samsung, HTC, and Sony. Are they going to be really more towards the hardware model? Well, they're going to try. I think they, they're going to struggle. Again, I think we, it's easy to make the assumption that this, like so many other markets, just simply becomes a hardware commodity. And, and it could play out that way. At the same time, there will be, I think, a, a limit to the ASP in the same way that there's a limit to the ASP of TV. Part of me feels like there's a good chance that at some point, point in time in the distant future, not in the one, two, three, four, maybe five years and beyond, VR headsets can essentially disrupt TVs. Because when you watch 
you know, again, sports or a movie and you see that content which is produced for VR, it's such a dramatically different experience than watching it on the television. It's so much better that I almost wonder if these are kind of the future TVs, if you will, large screen displays, immersive entertainment. So so they take they take time away or they essentially just completely replace the the, the television the role of the television in in consumers lives and so TVs aren't you know $100 right and so i think there's a lot of technology around those even if we can bring prices down i think you're still going to have some premium experiences i know everybody i talk to in the ecosystems trying to make this not be a race to the bottom but you know just because they've learned that lesson in PCs and phones and everywhere else but perhaps it just plays out that same way so hardware companies are going to try to have some margins you could just end up thinking that that it all becomes commodity and it might but i think again we're, i'm not going to lo- jump to that conclusion i think it, it's possible that they can still layer some value on top of these things and still get some decent margins but i do think again the content matters here quite a bit and there's i think there's some services angles as well unquestionably a lot of that really healthy margin and money is going to come from software and services i thought it's very insightful that you mentioned that it, vr and ar actually have the propensity of disrupting tv given that the mobile smartphone is now almost like a TV. I mean, if you were to be living in Asia and you go to subways, everybody is using a mobile phone to actually stream a lot of video, which also comes back to the point that given the rise of VR and AR in the content space as well, I I guess with a very interesting recent experiment by New York Times and also companies like John VR, Immersive VR Verse, Panel Studios, how does these content companies play in this space? Well, I think the challenge that we have right now is, and this is just again, this is common in, in early parts of the market, is there's a lot of fragmentation around that content, right? So you have to go to this app or this store to get that content, this app or this store to get that content. And, and obviously there has to be a way to unify the distribution so that it's easy for me to find and easy for me to discover anything, you know, when it comes to whether it's a movie or a TV show or something else, right? And right now it's it's kind of a, a user experience mess because this content is all over the place. So they're going to have to essentially get into some common distribution standpoint so that, you know, you can find and discover that content and you're not going to all of these, you know, fragmented places. Again, it, it might sort of play out very similarly to the way that networks work today. You know, Netflix is actually a network and, and others, there's the networks in China that aggregate content. There's networks in the U.S and other countries that aggregate content. And so essentially what what you're going to need is just good content aggregation pipes. So those content companies need to be a part of those aggregation, you know, that aggregation store, middleware, or network so that their content is amidst a a wide array of other content which can be consumed via VR that people can either pay for or is advertising supported, etc. So it's very similar to apps, to how you find TV shows and movies, is that you're going through an aggregator, in this case a central repository, which is either a store or a network. I think we're going to have to have those things come into play for content to really to those players to pull this off but it's a good opportunity because it's 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 kind of in those early stages there's opportunity for awareness and innovation and all those interesting things that I think as this evolves they'll find themselves in in places to get in front of the customer I think eventually this is all just going to settle on a couple of of aggregation networks and they, every content player is going to need to be a part of those it's actually interesting it could almost be a cable network like Netflix or an app store like the iTunes store, the Google Play store. Inevitably, so much of this will hit the market that you've just got to find a good way to find it. So that's why there's the aggregation is necessary and how it filters down to the discoverability point is going to be key. But we don't know what that is yet. I think you can 
you know, it's, it's logical to see somebody. All the content providers are just going to have to be a part of those aggregations. Okay, coming to the VR, AR headsets. I know you have been experimenting with the VR headsets with your family as well. What are the current VR headsets in the market and which ones are clearly looking to dominate? I mean, the most affordable, at least in, in the developed markets for devices still, I think, the Gear VR, even though you need a Samsung phone, that seems to be the earliest possibility of an entrant. I mean, I just don't think, you know, there's not a big market for six to $700 high-end PC gaming rigs like Oculus and Vive. You know, Morpheus is interesting because Sony's got a base of 36 million existing PS4 owners, you have to imagine that, you know, 10, 15% of them will jump into the market over the, you know, next few years for for that type of a headset. So Sony could probably take an early lead here in terms of volume share. But right now, those are sort of your three that I think present somewhere from a mid to a high range experience. Again, it does require very specific hardware, as does the Gear VR, but that's kind of the essence of where the competition is today. But again, there's a dramatically different experience between something like the Morpheus and the Vive and the Oculus than there is from, you know, the Samsung Gear VR. But I think the Samsung Gear VR is a good way for some people to first experience this. And we know Samsung's installed base in high-end Android devices is, is, is pretty big in the hundreds of millions. So they've certainly, and they're going to sell, you know, probably 30, 40 million high-end galaxies this year. So they've got a good base to go and bring that gear to. So I'm a bit optimistic about what Samsung can do with their hardware with Gear VR. And again, it is a pretty good experience. I think they'll also sort of take a early lead in that sort of a range. But again, very different experience from a Gear VR than from a, a you know, a high-end gaming like Oculus and, and Vive. For, for your kids, which one do they like? Well, the Gear VR is still sort of just the easiest, right? Netflix is tied into that, so they've been watching that. Again, being untethered makes a big difference, right? I mean, ultimately, no one wants to have this giant cable stranded off the back of them that they're worried they're going to trip over when they're trying to move around and look at what's behind them. So these things have to go untethered. You know, I'm still waiting for my Rift unit, and even though we've ordered the HTC one, we don't have that one, that one yet either. Uh, when we get those, I'll let them try that. But you know, right now the the Gear VR is the easiest. It's it's the one I'm when when any friends or family come over, they want to try it. They're trying the Gear VR, and you know, like again, the, the response is overwhelmingly positive. People really like it, and it demos extremely well. Like I said, that, that to me has a, a bit more of a larger immediate market opportunity just looking at Samsung's base, and at least it's a it's a pretty good one. But again, this when you're it's hard to predict the overarching sort of winners here abroad in the broader category because we're just so young. But it is nice to see Samsung do some of these things and bring some of these technologies around their ecosystem. But I do think the Sony one will do quite well over the next few years. But the, the, again, these brands I'm talking about, these four, are, are really the own the most mind share when it comes to this market and probably has it as well. I don't think we're going to see any major new entrant of a big brand you know, in, in 2017 outside of possibly Apple, but even then they might be more 2018-ish, if I'm speculating, timing-wise about when the market might really be ready. Still very small types of volumes, but those brands, I think, dominate the mind share. One interesting thing about Samsung, though, is I was talking to Best Buy, and Best Buy said that they've seen since January a dramatic increase in the number of consumers coming into their store just asking for the VR demo from Gear. One of the things that's been interesting to watch in my talk with the retailers over the past few years is they've been really struggling 
with any category that just gets consumers excited to come into the store. So for VR, their thinking is, you know, even if we don't sell a lot of these things or any of them, it's one of those opportunities to get people into the store. So I actually think over the course of this year, you're going to see very good demo centers, you know, experience centers inside of some of these big box retailers because people are coming just to see the demos just because they've never had a chance to see one and they really want to see it. So I think that creates an interesting opportunity because the more consumers we have walking into a retailer just to experience a good VR headset, that paves the way, that sets the groundwork for what we need to have happen over the next few years from an adoption cycle. And and more importantly, they're going in and actually seeing a good experience. They're not using a cardboard or some cheap thing you slap your iPhone into, which is really not a great experience. They're actually going and seeing a very immersive, much more higher resolution experience at retail. So I think retailers are going to start to hop on board with this because their eyes are being opened to the fact that people are walking in off the street just because they want to see one of these demos because they've heard about it and they don't know anybody who has one. So that's an interesting opportunity. And I think we're going to see a lot more retailers embrace these experience centers this year, which is an important step for, I think, where the industry wants to go over the next few years. So far, we have seen applications of AR embedded with smartphones and wearables. I mean, I will use the example of Google Glass. Are there any other use cases for AR? For example, Niantic Labs, which is famous for Ingress and now Pokemon Go in gaming. Yeah, no, I I think there's tons. It's interesting, like a couple of the demos, and so HoloLens is the best AR experience I've gotten so far. Magic Leap will be in the market with something interesting. It's going to be expensive. It's also tethered. But I think there'll be some demos. But one of the things that, you know, there's one demo that I thought was interesting. Actually, there's a lot of demos I thought was interesting in from HoloLens, but a few I'll just sort of talk through. One was a medical student's environment. And so when you put the headset on, up in front of you pops a human body and you can walk in, you can move back, you can walk all around it, you can use your hands and gestures to interact and take the, just expose the respiratory system, you could bring the heart up and then just dig in deeper on the heart and look at all of those things and someone's talking you through all of this while you're watching it. And so from an educational standpoint, it's actually quite profound if you think about how you could learn about the human body, explore the anatomy, actually dig into some of the more you know interesting components of the internals of the heart. And so you can imagine, you know, you don't actually have to have a cadaver, you know, if you're going be a doctor and go to this dead body class. You can just do it all virtually in these sorts of environments. So I thought that was kind of inspiring as to how you think about it from an education standpoint. One other demo they had that was interesting is a demo they demoed around Skype. And so the use case they walk you through is, you know, you need to change this socket, this wall, this light switch socket, and you don't know how. And so you call up this person on Skype and you see over here on the the left side of your of the display, you can move the window. And there's this person that's kind of walking you through how to change the light socket. And so he's drawing a diagram. He can see what you see. He's pointing to spots. He's using a pen and he's saying unscrew here, connect the black wire here. And so you just think, okay, and how many people need to do that to go and change a wall socket? But imagine if you're a mechanic. Imagine if you're working on airplanes. Imagine if you're on the factory floor and someone can see what you're seeing, draw on the screen, help tutor you, walk you through how to make that fix, how to change that, how to diagnose the problem. That's really interesting, right? Those are things that we don't, that don't exist today. One of the other demos they have is one where they simulate you walking on Mars with work they're doing with the Mars rover, where the Mars rover is going and capturing 360 degree images of Mars. And so you put on this headset and it's literally like you're standing on the face of Mars 
Mars. And you can kneel down and explore under rocks. You can look at different perspectives. You can walk because it's not tethered. You can walk many 20, 30 feet away and see a different part of Mars. The rover captured those. And that was, again, that's just what happens when we can start layering the digital on top of the physical from education to exploration to entertainment to gaming. I mean, there's just all sorts of interesting opportunities there, which is why I'm convinced these two worlds will merge at some point, VR and AR, because there's very, very deep and compelling use cases for both of them. And it makes sense technologically that we put those into one headset at some point in time. That's much more distant. AR has some real hard challenges to solve technology-wise. But again, the value propositions for both of them are so compelling, they'll merge into one device, one headset. And and then again, you'll kind of have this big content developer ecosystem around that, being able to have the diversity of both those types of experiences. So currently, in your opinion, which one is likely to break out this year, VR or AR? Oh, it'll definitely be VR. AR is still too expensive. There's a, Again, like I said, there's a lot of tech, hard technology to pull this off, and it's really expensive. You know, I mean, again, these AR sets are going to be more, much more expensive. VR, I think, unquestionably, for even the next few years. I, I think the best way to understand this is where you're at in VR today is probably where AR will be in two two or three years. It's got about a two to three year roadmap jump on AR. And then three years from there, right, early 2020s, I think we can start to see these things merge. But again, a lot of very important and very hard technology work from sensors to SOCs to thermals. I mean, all of this work has to be done by the component landscape. And that's going to take some time. So I always have to you know make sure this is clear. As excited as we are and as and as interesting as all of this is, we're talking very small numbers of headsets being sold in, in this year and probably even spilling into next year. From a sales category, this is not huge. It's interesting because we're paving the way, I think, for some extremely compelling future experiences over the arc of the next 10 years. But there are, like I said, some very important technologies to check. And more importantly, there is some very important innovation that has to happen over the course of the next few years for us to get to that reality. So it's exciting to talk about, but it's very small in terms of actual volume that's going to be shipped. Then, you know, I think once we start to see this stuff get worked out, we can see it go mainstream. Then we're talking some actual interesting volumes, but it's very small today. And I think we can't forget that, that we are talking you know, at best tens of millions of units in the past few years, not hundreds. Then over that course of time, I think we can spill in, into the landscape where we could see, a cut, you know, hundreds of millions sold annually. This is also pretty interesting because in the US, talk, you have the major players like Facebook, Google, they are all within the space of the AR and VR space. And in Asia, currently, it's actually only Samsung, which is Korean. Sony Japan, HTC Taiwan. We haven't even talked about the Chinese OEMs. They haven't got into the space yet. So it's probably still at a very nascent stage before the uh, category actually break out. Is that how I well, understand it? Yeah, I mean, but I, you are actually seeing some interesting things happen in China. I mean, I saw there was a couple brands here at the developer summit showing off fully enclosed head-mounted displays, all pretty much just using smartphone parts, right? So instead of taking a smartphone and attaching it to a head-mounted display. They just basically built a smartphone inside of a, of a VR unit. And this one company, I can't remember the name of their brand, but they were selling it for $200. So not a great experience. It was a MediaTek processor. The graphics were pretty bad. There was latency and lag. So it was not fantastic. But 
you're already seeing the Chinese ecosystem jump on these and build the mobile components into these headsets. And over time, over the next three or four years, you could imagine that, that Chinese OEMs can take that approach, build you know, on the backs of a really good Qualcomm design, put some memory in there and some sensors, and sell a fully enclosed head-mounted unit tied to uh, an experience from Alibaba or Baidu or any number of content uh, ecosystems that are developing in, in the mainland and actually have a pretty good headset for 200, maybe even 100, right, over the next four to five years. The things we're seeing in China are unique to China at this point. In fact, a lot of things we see are unique to China across the board, but especially this is particularly true in, in VR at the moment. So again, right, the, the, you might have a similar situation hardware-wise, like we saw with the smartphone market, where a lot of local brands pop up and have some of this hardware. It's certainly feasible to see. We're seeing the early stages of that right now. But I would expect, you know, your Huawei and Xiaomi. I mean, any brand that wants to be a consumer electronics company is silly to avoid this category for too long. It's very important when it comes to consumer experiences. And like I said, anyone who wants to own some portion of a consumer experience, whether that's video or engagement, I mean, Every single one of them should be in this space at some point in time. So I'm assuming I would not be surprised if Huawei is not in it by next year. Xiaomi, I mean, you name it, right? Any and like I said, any brand that wants to be in consumer electronics is going to have to seriously think about their play in VR. This is a continuing story, and I'm sure I'll have to get you back on to talk about this, about the progress in the next few years or so. Coming back, originally I scheduled you for this 100 episode. It was supposed that the Apple event is over because I think if I were to check back, usually you come on the show usually and after event, Apple event actually happens. So this time around, we got it before. <laughs> on the 21st of March, I know you're going. What are the interesting predictions for the upcoming Apple event? You know, it's interesting. I mean, there's changes, I think, that Apple's going down. You know, we don't normally see an event like this happen in the spring. They've typically used the spring to launch new categories of products. So iPad was launched in spring. The watch was launched in spring. These were brand new things. Uh, we don't typically see a, a product line update in the spring. But there's a lot changing around Apple. I, I think there's some seasonality to the hardware buying cycle that's changing. So from a standpoint of, you know, them doing this iPhone SE, you know, launching a, a an updated version of the 5 with better technology, you know, better camera, Apple Pay, all that stuff at 450 bucks is essentially a seasonal play. This is the type of year, this next few months is the type of year where people who aren't your hardcore have to have the latest and greatest will pay anything for you know the latest and greatest. They don't buy this time of year. They've typically already purchased. There's some seasonality elements that are changing that I'm intrigued with. You know, obviously Apple wants to be in market longer with some newer products for a calendar year just so that they benefit from those sales cycles. So bringing a new product, refreshing, you know, in this case the iPad 9.7 as it seems like they're going to do, helps them not have to wait to the fall so they can benefit from those sales cycles for longer. So we're seeing, again, some interesting changes, I think, around Apple how they embrace seasonality, how they understand global markets are not just Q4 and Q1. You know, again, their two biggest markets are the United States and China, which is a very Q4 and Q1 centric seasonality cycle. But other big markets that are growing in, you know, Japan and parts of Europe where they're growing, these are not seasonal cycles. They'll buy sort of at any time. So it does kind of make sense that they could perhaps have two events a year 
with products that are updated and targeting different environments and, and how they balance that refresh. So Apple's evolving with the market as they grow and, and become much, much larger globally. They're adapting to some of these global trends. That's also a part that we're seeing, I think, a part of this strategy. So it's very much an evolution, which I think is interesting that all of these market dynamics just are, they're so dynamic. It's not static that we have to keep embracing our analysis with a level of dynamic alteration when we see changes in the market because Apple's also changing as the market changes. And so that's kind of how I'm looking at everything they're going to do is how do we understand this new seasonal cycle? How do we understand how Apple's going to refresh products and bring products to market amidst the dynamics of the global markets that they play in? And more importantly, how they position these products. You know, why the iPhone SE at this price? Who do they believe the customer is for this? These are all the things I want to hear them talk about because it helps me or how to look and analyze this portfolio of products, which is essentially what they're creating as a diverse portfolio of products. So those are the kind of things I'm looking for, you know, on Monday. Uh, I'll probably walk away with, you know, a bunch of needed bullet points for analysis to talk about each product specifically, but high level seasonality changes, dynamics in the market that's changing, Apple changing with those dynamics are kind of all the things that I look at this event and say, okay, that's that's why, that's why this is happening, that's why they're doing the things that they're doing. They're not just doing one big event in the fall. Exciting. It's it's exciting to see just because there's there's unknowns. But at the same time, you know, I think this makes sense from them as a part of their their evolving global narrative. That comes to the rumors of the iPhone SE. I mean, there are different theories to why Apple is making this phone. And is the strategy actually meant for the emerging markets, given that Apple is actually making a very big play for India now? And also with China's market is actually softening at the moment. Well, again, I think it's a little bit unknown. One of my concerns with this product in India is, and they are growing in India. I mean, I think we can't ignore that there are portions of the Indian market who are not necessarily so price driven. There's portions of that market that do associate value with the iPhone. It's not growing anywhere near on the same pace that, that we saw happened in China over the past two years. But at $450, it's a four-inch phone. They're going up against five, five-and-a-half-inch phones that on paper are specced out better and, and, and on paper specs lead to value in in many emerging markets. They look at specs. It's just the reality of things. On paper, you know, you're going up against a $150, $200, five inch, five and a half inch Android phone. And then you're going to sell a 450, four inch phone against that, right? And so that's one of my concerns with a market like India is just that they're very value centric and a bit and a five and a half inch phone with an eight core processor and a bunch of memory and a decent camera at $200 looks like a pretty good value compared to $450 and four inches and, you know, some other stuff. So Apple's narrative in India is continuing. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that that's exactly where we're positioning this product. You know, a lot of people keep remarking, well, there's a huge portion of their base that's still on small screens. And that's true, right? Over over half their base is still on something is something smaller than the 4.7 because we know roughly less, somewhere around this time now, 40%-ish or so of the base is on the 6 or larger. So most of the base still on a four-inch phone or smaller. So there's theories around, well, people just aren't upgrading because they don't want the bigger phones. And that's not necessarily true at large. There are certainly some customers who want the small form factor. I absolutely believe that. And I think they'll be attracted to this product. I don't think it's as large as people think. Maybe maybe 10%, perhaps 15% of Apple's total 
user base is going to be dedicated to this small screen. But I think it makes sense that they address that, that for those consumers who who don't who who necessarily don't want the larger screens, have a new product, have Apple Pay, have updated processor, have updated camera. And so this provides a path for those customers and then for Apple to get those customers on the latest platforms with the latest technology with the screen size that they that they want, which in this case is a four inch device. I'm not sure that it's competitive in emerging markets at 450 against Android at 200 and a five inch good display phone. I think it'll take some share. I think it'll do okay. But my concern competitively is if you just put those two products on paper in in emerging markets, you know, the Android device looks like a better deal. People can disagree or, or reason that the, you can associate value with Apple's ecosystem, and that's true. But in most emerging markets, they've they've not really landed there yet. They're not mature customers, so for them, price is still a big deal, and 450 is still a lot. And, you know, and, and even in those markets, Apple's still selling a lot of 5s. You know, remarkably. So, you know, so we'll see. You know, like I said, I, I tend to think it's designed more. Just to embrace this this seasonal change, provide an upgrade path for customers who don't want the four seven or above screens, wants to stick with the four inch. I think that's kind of more its positioning. But like I said, we'll see. I, that's why I want to see how Apple talks about this product, who they believe it's for, why they've done this. Like those are the things I really want to hear, just so that I can help. It can help me better think about this product amidst their portfolio. And I'm looking forward to see your analysis on tech opinions on that. I have a penultimate question, and given that this is the 100th episode, I know you have been listening to the podcast, so I sort of just wanted to get a sense of what do you want to hear in the next 100 episodes or the next 200 episodes? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. You know, like I said, I've, I've always liked the speakers that you've had on who bring different perspectives of different markets, so whether that's VC, entrepreneurials in China, you know, the, the stuff you've done with some of the Indian guests has been good. It's nice to look at the, the Indian market and just understand that. So, you know, I think what you've been able to do is bring a much broader global set of speakers onto the platform. And I think, you know, me, not just trying to be focused on the US, but I'm very interested in all of these markets we study. That's that's super helpful, right, to have a podcast that actually looks at a lot of different global markets, but while at the same time, you know, picks out the trends. So so more of that, more of uh, of, of those types of speakers. You know, I think this year you're probably going to see across the board mobile commerce start to take up. So fintech and mobile commerce is probably some topics that that would be good for for you to hit on and bring some some speakers on to talk about what's unique in in mobile commerce, what's changing in commerce and fintech in markets like India and China and Brazil and Russia and all these places. So, you know, like I said, m- more of that obviously I think would be good, but uh, but yeah, I've always appreciated the global the, the really global outlook, you know, that you and the and the and the speakers are taking to to not just look at the U.S. but to look at China and India and, and other markets as well. So any other markets that are coming up, you know, maybe Brazil would be interesting at one point in time if you can find those speakers. Maintaining that global diversity, I think, is a good good thing to keep going. Thank you so much. And of course, the last and essential question: How do my audience find you? Ben. So I write regular, you know, columns at techopinions.com. You can follow me on Twitter. That's probably the easiest at Ben Beharin because I tweet, you know, everything I write and interesting stuff and stats. So those are the easiest ways to uh, to, to track me. You can find me at bilongcw or at bernalong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. You can also tweet to us and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud and Acast. And of course, always drop me a feedback once again, Ben, thank you for coming on this 100th episode and I really appreciate your feedback and thoughts on this and I look forward to speak to you again.
Yep, me too. Have a good one. Thanks a lot.